This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm your host, Guy Jeans, and on today's podcast, I've got Matt Lordeaux from the Casting Across podcast and blog, and um, he's really experienced in the fly fishing world. He's uh, worked at a fly shop, and he's real into conservation and that sort of thing, and on his podcast, you'll hear him discuss the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fly fishing. The podcast gives him the opportunity to revisit concepts that he's written about and also touch on the quarry and culture of fly fishing in ways that the written word won't allow. And I've got uh, Matt on the phone. Let me get him on here real quick. Stand by. Matt. Hey, guy. How you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, happy to do so. I'm, uh, you know, I've been listening to a few of your your podcast, which are really interesting, you know, your, uh, your casting across podcast, um, which, you know, is, is really cool. Cause you have so many different subjects that you talk about. I listened to the national park one. I listened to some of your, uh, casting podcasts and tips. Um, and you know, your brook trout, you talk about brook trout quite a bit cause you're in that area. Would you mind, um, like kind of talking about where you're from and, and that sort of thing, and the fish that you pursue in the in the east there? Absolutely. So I currently live uh, north of Boston on the Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and really you could even say Maine border. So I am uh, in an awesome location to pursue a diverse uh, range of species. I am about uh, 15 minutes from catch. There we are. We're back. Go ahead, Matt. Sorry about that. Where um, you were talking no, about where you were from, and yeah. So uh, again, I'm I'm really close to Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine. Uh, about 15, 20 minutes, I can be catching stripers off the coast. Nice. About an hour, and I can be fishing for brook trout in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Uh, and there's countless other opportunities, whether it be warm water, salt water, or trout, uh, just right where where I am. And so I. I really am very, very spoiled in that I have a lot of great fishing just at my fingertips. That's awesome. Are you close to uh, D.C. at all? So right right now I am, uh, it's, it's about six hours. Now I grew up outside okay. of, of D.C. in Northern Virginia. Uh, and so that's kind of like uh, if you're on Casting Across or you're listening to the podcast, 
I talk about fishing the mid Atlantic almost as much as I talk about fishing new England. Uh, so that, that was a formative place for me in not just my, my fly fishing and my exposure to the outdoors, but also my, uh, getting involved in conservation and getting involved in the fly fishing industry. All that happened in, uh, Northern Virginia, South Central Pennsylvania. Nice. I, uh, I asked that because, um, I've been out to, um, kind of your area in the, I guess in the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania area, um, one time, uh, fishing out there for a couple couple weeks um are you are you fishing around pennsylvania quite a bit too you know whenever i get down there i do fish there i i lived on a couple of the most you know uh, written about uh spring creek in pennsylvania down in south central pa for uh, about six years and i and prior to that i would travel up and back so those are spots where even if i'm driving through i'm happy to throw my money at the their fishing game department for a day license just so i can get back on that water so yeah, there's, there's a lot of, of great memories there, and they're, they're waters that still feel like my home water, even though I'm you know six, seven hours away. Man, I, uh, I fished, uh, like, yeah, Spring Creek, Penns Creek, mm. Little Juniata, I think it was called. That's, that's right, yeah. Um, and then uh, Fishing Creek, I think there was one there. Yep. Yeah, all around that state college area. And, yeah, those are just pr- premier fisheries, I mean, productive year-round uh, fish will be rising to dry fly year round yeah. and you're getting into big, big fish on small water too. And, uh, you know, it's also the, the birthplace of so much of the, the techniques and tactics and even the gear that we are so used to uh, reading about utilizing and uh, being familiar with. What I was impressed about, uh, Pennsylvania was that they had taken some of these creeks that were, I guess, you know, had, had chemicals in them or, People mm-hmm. dump their trucks in there or, you know, old trucks and trash and stuff. And they've turned these creeks around and made them these beautiful blue ribbon trout streams. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, that's, that's something that is, that is always uh, important to remember what you just said. I mean, with all of the negative messaging that we get, and, and a, a lot of it is deserved about the state of the environment and ecology, uh, you, you only have to look so far as the East Coast, whether it be Pennsylvania or uh, Maine, these places that were just completely decimated, whether it be by logging or, like you said, uh, over-industrialization to the extent of there being you know, old vehicles dumped in these streams or just mm-hmm. incredible uh, point source pollution going to these waters. But now you can walk there and not even know that there was a problem and catch large amounts of, of, or large quantities of large fish on, on a daily basis. And so there's a lot of, of good stuff there. And I think that just like uh, uh, Pennsylvania was one of the first places for a lot of fly fishing, it's also one of the first places for um, environmental awareness and conservation. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I, was, I, was, um, I was also blown away. I was with a, a whole bunch of people um, and fishing and, and kind of competition type stuff, you know, but... Um, what was really cool is I, you know, California kid going out east, first time out there. Um, and I had no idea that, you know, pencil, Pennsylvania was such a trout Mecca. And I was just like, mm. this is awesome. You know? <laughs> and, and the other cool thing was, you know, driving in the bus, you know, just, you know, uh, seeing the Amish people for the first time, you know, for me, it was like really, <laughs> was really, uh, kind of cool too. And I, I was, you know, the naive 
person who was like getting his camera out and stuff, you know, <laughs> and they're like, no, dude, you're not supposed to take pictures of them, you know. <laughs> That's right. You And you want to stay on their good side because one yeah. of the big secrets is that some of the, well, you want to stay on people's good sides in general. Let's yeah. just start with that. But <laughs> beyond that, some of the best trout streams, these small spring creeks that are just so nutrient rich that with a running start, you know, you or I could jump over these things. Yeah. In some of these places in Lancaster County, Cumberland County, they hold 16, 18, 20 inch trout, but you can't get on them unless you know the farmers. And a lot of times it's these, these Amish farmers. And, uh, you, you'd be surprised at what you can get into with a couple of nice conversations and being willing to share, you yeah. know, like, uh, like a sandwich with somebody. Right. That's so cool, man. Uh, the other, the other, um, fishery that I heard about, I, I, I actually got invited by trout unlimited to do some lobbying in DC and I had never been to DC mm. as well. And I was met there by some, uh, younger fly fishing dudes from trout unlimited. And they were telling me about the Potomac and, oh, yeah. and fishing. And they were showing me some of the flies that, that don't even have hooks on them. You know, they're just made out of materials. So the, I guess it was, it, is it pike that are in there or, um, so there's a couple of toothy species in there. I mean, you, yeah. you will get into some gar, um, but then there's snakehead, <laughs> which oh, yeah. is, I mean, that was all the buzz. I mean, talk about like having a, a short attention span as a, as a culture. Yeah. I mean, 15 years ago, we thought snakehead was going to eat every bass and trout and that they were going to crawl on land and they were going to eat our children. Right. <laughs> well, now the, the anglers in DC are just in love with these fish. They have found their own niche. Nature is so resilient as long as things aren't happening on the extreme. And they are, they are sport fish to the point where they, a lot of guys who I know that fish for these or guide for these, they're wanting to introduce protections for the snakehead because the snakeheads are right? apex predators in the, in the Potomac. No other fish is eating them while they are adults. And so they're walking around like cocks of the walk and people are easily snagging them and they've become a great, you know, source for folks who are wanting fish for table or fish for, for the market. Wow. That's so cool, man. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was funny. Um, uh, you know, we went into the Capitol building and kind of went underneath the Capitol building and we're down there and mm. they, they weren't, they were showing me their flies that they use and stuff, you know, <laughs> down, <laughs> down in the cafeteria underneath the Capitol building. It was pretty funny. So you can probably only get hookless flies <laughs> into yeah, the Capitol. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. So you also worked at a fly shop. It sounds like. Yeah, I, I've, I've done a number of things in fly fishing industry, and my very first kind of paid position or formal position was at a, one of the Orvis stores uh, that it was in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. That There's a new location now. Um, mm-hmm. It used to be a, a, in this tiny little building, super cramped, low ceilings, like you couldn't stand a nine-foot rod up on end to show it to somebody. You had to walk out into the parking lot to even just hold the thing. Sounds like my uh, shop. But, <laughs> <laughs> and, but there is no fan. And that's really uh, all that matters. As long yeah. as there's no fan right. and the, the uh, pneumatic closing on the door is nice and slow. Those are the two <laughs> things you want. Anyone out there starting a fly shop, those are the two things you want. But, uh, yeah, I did that for, for a few years, and it was just awesome. You know, after memorizing fly shops or fly fishing catalogs for years and years to be able to – talk about these things passionately with people that were also passionate about it and to really kind of get my foot in the door of 
this awesome community that we have of people who are in the fly fishing industry. And then really you're only kind of like one step away from just your average fly fisher. It's just such a tight knit group. And to be in that on a daily basis was really, really cool. That's awesome. In the, in the fly shop, did you guys have, uh, you know, some different characters coming in there every once in a while? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, so this is, I, I think it's still the case. But this is back in the day when Orvis had the no questions asked return policy. Um, and oh, so you get people coming in there with the sweatiest, nastiest, like they probably took it off in the parking lot to bring it in to exchange it. Socks and pants <laughs> and hats. And they would, they would ask for a, an exchange or they'd ask for store credit. Um, Cause oh all you had God. to do is just put it on the countertop and, um, I, you know, you appreciate the, uh, the company standing behind their products, but you really, and, and in that situation as a 19 year old, 20 year old, I wasn't about to, to cop an attitude with somebody, but yeah. you know, the spirit of the, of the law was not being respected. <laughs> the letter of the law was being taken advantage of. And so we had a number of, of situations like that. Oh my God. I couldn't imagine doing that. It'd be a nightmare. <laughs> we had to do that. <laughs> You know, yeah. you know, owning a fly shop, um, I've, I've had my fly shop for 20 years now. And, and, you know, one of the cool things about fly shops is it creates, um, you know, not only a culture in that town for fly fishing, but it's, it's a meeting place. It's, a mm. you know, tell your stories, of course, you know, and meet friends. And, and, you know, over the years I've met some of my best friends through, through fly fishing and the fly shop and just going fishing with them. I bet it, it was pretty similar for you, huh? Yeah. I, I mean, there, there was, I think across the board, there was opportunities to kind of meet people and then fish with them, uh, mm-hmm. meet people and then kind of have conservation or even professional opportunities down the road. Uh, I mean, even here we are, this is, you know, 25, almost 25 years later, 22 years later. And there's people that I'll still run into like, Oh, I, I worked with you. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I sold you gear. You were, mm-hmm. you know, you just started fly fishing. Now you're the president of a TU chapter, that kind of thing. And, uh, to be able to have that connection that lasts either, either on a, uh, a ongoing basis or an intermittent basis, uh, for over two decades, like, like you said, is, is really, really cool. And it shows you just kind of how it is a tight knit community where it's very easy for anybody to kind of have a conversation with anybody else. You know, one of the things that we do at our fly shop too, is we try to, you know, have that no ego kind of approach, you know, and, and invite everybody into the shop, you know, no matter what skill level, you know, so Mm. that's kind of been pretty successful for us is, um, you know, making sure that everybody, you know, comes in and, and has a good time and, and leaves, you know, with a smile instead of, you know, that, the ego style type of a shop, you know, so that's, that's been really, really huge for us. So, um. What about uh, brook trout out where you're at? You know, we uh, we have brook trout out here, in, mm. and uh, they've been taken from, I think, your area and then brought out to the to the west here and put in a couple of the streams in the southern Sierra where we're located. Um, we have them, but also we have them in the high Sierra lakes as well, and they've gotten pretty big. Mm. Um, you yeah. Know, you don't really hear a brook trout getting real big in, in some of the – um, smaller streams, but these, these, uh, brook trout that we have up in, uh, the golden trout wilderness, uh, uh, Sequoia national park boundary are, are really big, you know, uh, hmm. pushing 17 to 20 inches, you know, pretty good size. No, that's, 
I mean, that's one of those things where if I caught a fish like that in the trout streams near me, I'd be, yeah. you know, I don't do a lot of bragging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I would start yeah. bragging. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, the, I, I, brook trout were not, was not the first trout I caught. Brook trout was not the first trout I caught on a fly rod, but mm-hmm. immediately upon gaining independence, uh, when I was uh, 16 or 17 and my buddies and I got vehicles, uh, and we started just bugging out of, um, of Northern Virginia to get to the mountains. We got into the Shenandoahs and we started chasing, uh, brook trout and these high mountain streams. And it was an immediate love for these fish because of where they live. Uh, it, there's, there's still wild places in the East coast. And this is the cool thing is I've caught brook trout down in South Carolina and I've caught brook trout up in Maine and pretty much everywhere in between all the way up into their native range of uh, like the great lakes area of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And they're the same fish, but they're also very different. And this is the, the case with, you know, any other species where you have speciation, you have strains, you have subspecies, you have coloration that varies from stream to stream. And, but at the same time, here on the East Coast, there are only native fish, uh, no, there's only native salmon that had wide distribution, but it's something that kind of links the Appalachians, links the East Coast. And so wherever you go, it's going to look different, it's going to smell different, but the fish are going to be the same within a, a, a certain kind of uh, spectrum. And so for me, it's been really cool because I've lived in all those places. I've lived all up and down the East Coast. And wherever I go, as long as I drive west from the coast, and I hit mountains, as long as that stream is, you know, wide enough to, uh, to, to wade in, I'm going to be able to catch brook trout. So for me, that's really cool. It's also another success story, like what you, we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. where deforestation in the Appalachians was a, such a significant issue. Mining was such a, a significant issue. Yet these fish, as fragile as we often take trout to be, are also relatively resilient. And so you have these tiny headwaters where these fish were able to survive and really even thrive in that two to four inch range until we were able to come in, do uh, remediation of the damage that had been done by forestation or by industrial interests. And now these fish are returning and they are getting back into these larger portions of the stream where they're able to get back into these sizes that we read about at the turn of the century and even back into the the 18th and uh, the late 17th century, which is really, really exciting. So brook trout, are, where are they native from? And, and were they put in some of the streams like where you're at? Is that how they got there? Or they've always been in that area? Are they native to that zone? Or are they, were they stopped? Yeah, brook, uh, trout, brook trout are native. The, the, generally speaking, their, their range kind of looks like the area surrounding the Great Lakes. Okay. And then east over kind of the Ohio drainage uh, down, uh, down into the very southern tip of the Appalachians. So the northern, northeastern portion of Georgia, the northwestern portion of South Carolina, and then all the way up the Appalachians, and it, it kind of gets wider there as the the, um, the things kind of cool off a little bit. So you start to see them uh, out of the mountains and into the valleys once you get into Virginia and Pennsylvania, and then once you get up to Maine, uh, Maine being kind of the last great refuge for brook trout, they're all over the place. They're in the mm-hmm. mountains, in the valleys, they're in the plains. Um, and then up into Canada, that's where you still can get brook trout. That'll, you know, take your hand off if you're not paying attention. Um, but that, that's their, that's their native range. And like you said, they've been distributed, uh, out West and it just, it boggles my mind that when I fished in places like Colorado, you know, they say kill all the brook trout because they're, (laughs) they are, they're, you know, out here, the brown trout, uh, you know, take the niche of the brook trout and in the, the Rockies, the brook trout take the niche of the cutthroat. And then you get over to where you are. And I'm sure that, 
if they're in the wrong place, the wrong time, they can be detrimental to some of your native species. But, yeah. uh, yeah, this, that's kind of where this is their, their traditional stomping ground. It sounds interesting. It sounds very similar to our area. You know, we have, um, you know, our state fish, the golden trout in our mm-hmm. zone in the Southern Sierra. And then we have non-native brown trout um, in some of the streams as well. So they've spent millions of dollars, including the Orvis company. You know, um, I know you're, you're familiar with them, but they were, uh, you know, real instrumental in trying to protect the golden trout along with other mm. you know, cow trout and trout unlimited and that sort of thing. And quite frankly, it's, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to be able to get rid of the brown trout. They're just <laughs> everywhere. And, and I've seen, yeah. I've seen the brown trout gobbling up golden trout, you know, while sitting on the stream. Mm. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. But um, mm. very similar kind of a situation, you know. What about, um, do you guys have a rainbow trout out there as well? We do. Uh, yeah. And actually, and you know, once you get into the put and take stream, the they, the rainbow trout, in, in my opinion, are ideal because uh, generally speaking, their spawning uh, routine is it doesn't run concurrent with a brook trout. Mm. Uh, they're also they're they're not as pestiferous as quickly. They're, so they don't feed on juvenile fish as fast as like a brown trout does. Mm-hmm. I mean, I absolutely love brown trout. I love catching them. I love the way they fight. I love the yeah. way they rise to, to dry flies. But uh, in 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 my humble opinion, you know, I, I don't have a lot of problem with, with stocking trucks, dumping buckets and buckets of fast growing, uh, eager to strike rainbow trout and some of these uh, put and take streams that we have. But even some of the larger waters that we have out in kind of Western Massachusetts and into uh, uh, Connecticut and, and places like that, uh, the, the brook trout in some of the tailwaters and the large rivers, they get big and they get feisty and uh, they're really not much of a threat to the, to the to native brook trout. So they, I'm content to have them live and let live. So the brown trout and the brook trout spawn in the fall, correct? Is that, is that correct. right? Correct, yeah. So, so do, you, yep. do you ever get any of those spawning together or that fish that's called, is it called a tiger trout? Or, yeah, yeah like tiger that. trout. Do you and ever get those? I, we do. We get them really? and, uh, and it's, it's just amazing to, to see it happen. Yeah. I personally have never caught, knowingly caught a tiger trout. Uh-huh. Um, I, I've caught brook trout with some really funky patterns and colors on them, but I've always just assumed this is a fish that's got an abnormal uh, coloration or pattern. Uh, but I, I know folks that have caught tigers. I know people who have caught multiple tiger trout, uh, uh-huh. which is which is pretty cool. I think it's a, a right place, right time thing. Or maybe a, you know, a pair of uh, brook and brown trout that are incredibly friendly with each other but yeah. <laughs> uh yeah i i've never caught them but i i've seen them caught and uh, i've got friends that have caught them you know we get golden trout uh rainbow trout uh hybrids here mm. in our area what is, is there a name for those or is it just a golden rainbow hybrid yeah golden rainbow hybrid <laughs> yeah that's it so it, it's it's interesting you know in if you didn't know this it's kind of cool um you know in our area we have uh, three native trout you know we have the kern river rainbow which is native to mm-hmm. to the kern where where i'm at 
And then yep. we also have the golden trout. And then we have another one in our area called the little kern golden trout, which is a separate species, hmm. which is kind of cool. So if you ever come out this way, Matt, you're going to have to go fishing with me and check out all these little <laughs> streams, man. Oh, it's, absolutely. It's really cool. Um, what about, uh, have you, are you, we'll talk about rods here in a second, but did you get into the, yeah. the whole tin car thing at all? Did you try that with your little creeks and, you know, I, I have one and, yeah. <laughs> uh, I have one tin car yeah. rod Me too. <laughs> and I, and I can say that I have, I have used that rod. Uh-huh. I have never, uh, even tried to fish the tin car style. So using those traditional flies right. uh, and, and using some of those techniques. I mean, I've, I've watched videos. I've been to seminars. I have had a number of conversations with the, the, the gentleman who kind of really pushed uh, Tenkara in the United States and, mm-hmm. and uh, founded Tenkara USA before he, he sold that company. And so uh, lots of conversations and, and, and really interesting. I never have pursued the technique. Yeah. So the, the, the rod I use, I use the rod primarily when I am hiking and mm-hmm. I don't anticipate fishing, but I don't want to be caught without a fly rod <laughs> because it gets so compact. Right. Um, and I've got four boys and we're now just, we're, we're getting to the point cause they're uh, 10, eight, six, and soon to be four where I can kind of let them do what they want to do and I can fish for a little bit. Um, but for the longest time it was, you know, I got to have my eye on at least three kids at once. And so if I get a chance to cast while we're up in the mountains, and the Tenkara rod made sense because you kind of just whip it out like a toy lightsaber yes. and, uh, and make a couple of quick casts, but never really gave it too much attention. And honestly, I, I'm just, I really love Western fly fishing. And so I like having a reel. I like being able to cast short or far and not being kind of limited Me too. Uh, in my approach. Me too. Me too. I even, uh, you know, we have a, a stream here called the lower Kern river, which is a tailwater. And we have, uh, uh, smallmouth bass and largemouth bass mm. in it, which is super fun. And I use actually smaller weighted rods down there that they don't get very big, you know, the smallmouth mm. down there. What mm-hmm. about you guys? You guys have some smallmouth in your zone? We do. We have smallmouth yeah. that are uh, actually smallmouth are kind of a, a pestilence to some places up in uh, up in Maine. And that's where I've caught my biggest smallmouth uh, in, in New England is up in Maine. But uh, in the central part of the state, there's some rivers that are, uh, and, and lakes that are kind of prime brook trout spots. So the smallmouth are actually the enemies of the brook trout because uh-huh. they're just voracious feeders. Right. But uh, one, of, one of my first guiding kind of jobs when I guided for a few summers was on the Shenandoah in, in Virginia. And that is the premier fish of the Shenandoah, the Potomac, and the Susquehanna. So, you know, the Potomac runs west to east. Um, and the Shenandoah runs south to north, and the, the Susquehanna runs north to south, and they all more or less converge in the same spot. Um, the Susquehanna empties into the Chesapeake a little bit uh, above where the Potomac does, but all three of those rivers are great smallmouth rivers. They're, they've kind of fallen on hard times, but I remember days where you, your arm would be tired from catching big smallmouth on light rods, however you wanted. You could drift nymphs, you could float dry flies, you could strip streamers, and uh, absolutely love smallmouth bass. Probably my favorite, pound for pound, my favorite fish uh, that, that's out there. Oh, we got that in common, that's for sure. <laughs> so if I, if I was to take a trip out there to go uh, mm. fishing for smallmouth, where would you send me? So if you were to come to the East Coast to fish for smallmouth, oh goodness, um, you know, I would probably say uh, Central Pennsylvania. So you don't just have the main branch of the Susquehanna, but you have the a couple of, you have the west branch of the Susquehanna, and then you have the Juniata River. 
Um, and these are spots that aren't as popular uh, as maybe the main branch of the Susquehanna or the Shenandoah. And the main branch of the Susquehanna, 20 years ago, that would have been where I would have sent you, you know, without a, a doubt. But there's been some uh, environmental issues, some fish population issues. We had a, a string of really low water years that, that really hampered some of those young fish classes. Uh, we had some pollution issues. All that to say, um, there's still a lot of fish in the upper reaches of that system. Uh, and it's just, it's big water, big, uh, you know, um, rock shelves, so you can fish drop-offs, big weed beds. Oh, so it. it's just prime uh, spot for, for smallmouth. And then the bycatch, like if, if you fall on hard time, you might be catching musky, you might be catching pike, you oh. might be catching, catching big carp. You'll yeah. even be catching trout if you're in the right time of year that have moved into these bigger rivers for thermal refuge. So it's really a mixed bag, but uh, those are still some of the, the best smallmouth fisheries out there. And then all, all of the tributaries hold fish as well. So, so the, the Juniata is, the, uh, is really big, and the little Juniata, which I fish for trout, is that run obviously runs into it then? Correct. Yeah. Does that get, does a little Juniata get smallmouth too? You know, they, I mean, they'll always move up into it. Um, yeah. And uh, the, the, that is, the little J is not known for, for smallmouth as much as the Juniata itself okay. is. But again, you know, given the season, given the flows, given water temperatures, fish are always going to go where they're going to be happy. And as long as you can anticipate that, then you'll get them. And what time of year would, would you suggest on that? So <laughs> this might just be nostalgic, but my ideal. Uh, smallmouth trip is is wet wading or using a kayak to wet wade mm-hmm. uh, in the, the the heat of summer and yep. I and first thing in the morning and then uh, in the evening time. Okay. So I love I love fishing for uh, for smallmouth in Pennsylvania and in Virginia uh, in August uh, in in the evening time. You get some big hatches. They have the fly called the white fly down there, um, which is just a, a big white mayfly. Uh, you have the hex hatch, you have drakes that come off. And as much as I love like ripping poppers for the topwater smallmouth action, there's just something about a smallmouth attacking a dead drifted dry fly. That oh, is, man. Yeah, it's just unique. Um, and honestly, for, for what it's worth, I feel like fishing those traditional trout tactics for smallmouth. Mm-hmm. It's not only more productive, but it can be more fun and you're going to be getting into more finicky fish. So, uh, nymphing a big helgramite or a big stonefly mm-hmm. for a uh, smallmouth or fishing big chubby mayflies or even things like dragonflies or damselflies for, for smallmouth. I feel like I catch as many smallies doing that as I do ripping poppers or big articulated streamers. Oh man, it sounds, it sounds uh, very similar to the lower current. You know, we're doing all that stuff, mm-hmm. damselflies, dragonflies, crayfish style patterns. Um, Right, you right. Know, uh, popper dropper type stuff as well, which is super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, man, what a what a fun fish, man! I'm, I gotta get, <laughs> I gotta get out there to that area. I love I love smallmouth. Everyone thinks I'm a geek, a bass geek out here in <laughs> trout world. <laughs> but, Nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah, I've been trying to you know like a lot of my clients, you know, they want to go fishing for trout and let's go let's go to the lower current and you know catch some smallmouth in there all (laughs) (laughs) trying to put put the sales pitch on them but some of them that's right once once they taste it they'll they'll want more exactly right exactly right they love it after they do it for sure um it's really really fun 
So tell me, how did you get into doing a, a podcast and, and why did you start your, your website? And I mean, your podcast, yeah. your podcast is, is amazing, man. I mean, you have over a hundred podcasts on there, right? I think to, uh, tonight episode, as of we're recording, episode 205 is going to be dropping. So I've been doing it for wow. 205 weeks, whatever that translates into. <laughs> so it's, it's a, I mean, it's a big question. I'll try to be concise. But uh, so my first kind of fly fishing job, like I said, was in Orvis back when I was uh, in the, it was in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And from there, I got into selling fly rods and uh, for, for a company just as a kind of as a rep. And uh, not Orvis, a different company. And then I was teaching casting and just general fly fishing instruction uh, all the way through college. Then, and that was in South Carolina, moved to Pennsylvania, I'm in graduate school. And I actually stumbled onto a camp. It's called the Pennsylvania Rivers Conservation and Fly Fishing Youth Camp. And this was a camp I attended when I was like 17 years old. And it was very instrumental for me in becoming aware of the conservation side of things. I was just a kind of a, a trout bum for lack of a better term. I mean, that's, that's you get overused, but all I want to do is catch fish when I was in high school. I went to this camp and I learned about conservation and just kind of how to be a steward of the environment. So mm-hmm. fast forward six or seven years, I'm in graduate school. I run to this camp. I start being a volunteer at the camp and kind of, you know, things, thing happens, things happen, thing happen. I end up being one of the directors of the camp. So I am involved in fly fishing again after working in it for a number of years. I'm back involved in it, talking with conservationists, talking with biologists, talking with companies, being the liaison to get these kids gear and equipment, speaking at TU chapters, just absolutely loving it. So uh, life changes. I decide to pursue a new career. I feel called to go into ministry. So I move up to New England to pursue that, and life just gets busy. And it's good. It's good busy. Uh I, I am very involved with obviously working at the church and I, we start having children and I am not involved in the fly fishing world as much as I'd like to. And so I thought, you know, I really want to get back into this. How can I do this? Well, writing has always been a passion of mine and I do a lot of writing in ministry, but my subject matter here is kind of objective. Like I don't like messing with perfection yeah. <laughs> with what I do at church. So I don't, I don't have the same kind of creative outlet. I can't, it's not so much about my opinion. So I thought, you know what, I want to get into writing and I want to do so on a consistent basis so that I can continue to hone my abilities as well as just share my passion for something. And fly fishing was just a natural outpouring of that. So I started casting across. It'll be seven years ago this month. Uh, so 2015, I started writing casting across uh, an article Monday, an article Wednesday, an article Friday. And I made a commitment to myself that I'm going to put something out. Uh, and I've been putting out an article three times a week, every week for the last seven years. And wow. it covers a variety of topics. Some of it is anecdotal stories. Sometimes it is product reviews, whether it's a product that I've had for a long time or if it's something brand new I've picked up or something that a, a company sends me to review. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I really enjoy doing is showcasing and spotlighting other people um, and places and things in the industry, because I, I really like what I always tell people is if you're a good person or you've got a good thing, I want other people to know about it. Exactly. So that's one of been one of the main focuses of casting across is being a vehicle to talk about companies or guides or personalities, conservationists, places, success stories that have happened or every once in a while throwing in like a dumb story that, that happened to me, you know, sometime in the last 25 years. 
So seven years of that, um, but probably about three years ago, I decided I, I want to do a podcast because I'd been on a number of podcasts. I'd written a number uh, or I've written about podcasts a number of times. One of my top viewed articles still today, uh, thousands and thousands of people who Google fly fishing podcasts end up on casting across with some of my podcast recommendations. And that has led to lots of people saying, well, why don't you have a podcast? Why don't you talk about things? Mm -hmm. Initially I said, you know what? I don't want to do what everybody else is doing and what everybody does well, which is interviews. Uh, I, I, there's so many people that do it and do it great. I want to do something different. And I also don't want to find two or three of my fishing buddies and sit around a table and talk because that's also being done well. So my desire was to basically take what I'd been doing for the last few years and turn that into a short digest. Uh, podcast style. So every podcast, you know, comes in between 22 and 25 minutes. It's a short take on a topic or an issue uh, or just a technique or even just spotlighting an area. And then I give uh, and kind of a, a quick thumbnail sketch of some of the things that have been on the website recently to kind of direct people there. And then I give a product place or person review at the end of the, of the podcast. So it's a very concise little thing that people can listen to kind of on their way to work while they're, they're folding their laundry. And, uh, mm-hmm. just kind of, kind of do my own thing, but there you go. Long answer to a short question. Um, unbelievable. All the different topics that you talk about. I, I just, uh, recently listened to the national park one and I thought that was really mm. cool. You know, why, why fish fish in a national park. Right. And, and it's incredible, you know, all the national parks that we have, it's pretty, pretty cool. And, uh, we have, uh, in our area, um, you know, you, you mentioned the, uh, Yosemite, um, but we right. al- but we also have uh, the Kings Canyon National Park and, mm-hmm. and another one called Sequoia National Park, which is where our river it runs through that as well. And um, and you can't really get to the area unless you to the river part of it in the national park unless you ride a horse, you know, for eight hours <laughs> or, you, you know, so it's pretty pristine. Um, an amazing uh, area to get to, or you oh, have, that's or you fantastic. Have, yeah, that's just really cool. And that's where the Kern river rainbows reside. Um, uh, but back to your blog. Um, yeah. what, what, what plans do you have to go further? Are you just going to keep doing the same thing that you're doing? It's working for you. Yeah, it's, it's working for me. My, my wife always says I need to do more interviews and I do it. Just, you need time. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. well, you know, we, I think you can, you can appreciate that. Um, I, I've got a couple of ideas for highlighting some, you know, people. I, again, I, I, I love my website uh, to be kind of a launch pad for people yeah. where they come to me to go somewhere else. Yeah. I, I never want casting across to be the terminus. I will always want it to be, you know, they get something and they go to somebody, they go to a place, they go to a product, or they even just take something that I've talked about and then they employ that as they are fishing or they are thinking about fishing. Yeah. So I've got some ideas for the coming uh, winter as things slow down a little bit um, to kind of find new ways to showcase and spotlight uh, people that are, are, you know, really making fly fishing what it is. Very cool. Very, very cool. If you had a perfect day fly fishing, I know, I know mm-hmm. if you had a perfect day fly fishing and, and you talk about this too, is that, you know, fly fishing isn't just about catching fish, you know, and that it's, right. it's very similar for me as well. You know, I mean, going fishing with my dad and, you know, mm. and seeing him catch a fish is just as fun for me to watch him catch a fish, you know, than me catch one. So 
or even, or even my kids, you know, that sort of thing, you know, it kind of gets to that level after a while and, um, just living in the moment, you know, and I know that you, you like that as well. And so kind Mm -hmm. of, kind of describe to me, um, you know, what your perfect, uh, fly fishing day would be like. That's a great question. And, you know, (laughs) I, I think that probably it aligns a lot with what you just said. And that is, how can I pass the experience on to my boys or to other people that I, I, I fish with? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Latorte Spring Creek, which is in South Central Pennsylvania. I lived on it. I worked, the parking lot of where I worked backed up to it for about uh, six years. And it's a small spring creek that just used to be this mecca and angling destination. And it is not what it used to be, but it's still phenomenal it is a challenge it is a grind but when you hit it it really pays off and it's incredibly rewarding um wild beautiful strong brown trout in this tight little uh spot and so it is technical and it is challenging um and so for me i would love to wake up early get a very big hot cup of coffee and a greasy breakfast sandwich with my one of my sons (laughs) get out on that water and walk them through things that I have done on that stream and show them places where I've caught fish. And as we're doing that, set them up to be able to have those similar situations Mm -hmm. and be able to see them fail and get frustrated Mm -hmm. and be able to see those fish flash at those flies Mm -hmm. and see that look in their eyes that I know that I had the first time I saw a 20 inch fish come out of a tiny little culvert to chase a, chase a streamer. Mm -hmm. Um, and then get them to land something reasonable. I don't want them to, you know, get spoiled and catch that 20 inch fish. (laughs) I want them to catch that 12 inch trout and for that trout to to be what whets their appetite. And then, uh, just be able to sit. And like I did so many times, just sit on the side of the stream and watch, uh, bugs dance on the surface, watch fish chase after them. Uh, do things like that would be, would be kind of my ideal day if I had to do something today, uh, on the water. Very cool. I have one more question for you and I always end my podcast with this question, um, because I'm a musician and so I love, I love to hear what other folks are listening to out there. And, uh, do you have any, any, uh, music that you're listening to that you can think of that you're listening to that you might want to share with us? Oh, so this is, this is a hard question. Um, <laughs> so I, I have very diverse tastes. And I think a lot of people yeah. do. I um, mean, there's not a lot that I, I won't listen to. Sure, sure. Um, but what I really am into these days is kind of new folk, new Americana, oh, right bluegrassy on. stuff, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, Trampled by Turtles, Punch Brothers, that kind of thing. Cool. Just really, uh, you know, it's chill, but then you stop and you listen to it and you realize, my goodness, these people are virtuosos on the mandolin or on the banjo or something like that. So we can kind of work at two levels where if I'm working, I can have it in the background. It's not going to like completely distract me, but if I crank it up and I listen to it, then it's got enough going for it where I can be engaged. But, um, I, I think that's, that's kind of what's going on most, most presently. That's what I was listening to before you called. That's awesome. <laughs> You know, it's, it's crazy. You know, some of the musicians where I live up in the mountains, you know, the first time I heard them, you know, coming from, you know, the, the coast and kind of uh, Mm -hmm. north, north of Los Angeles type of 
area and then coming up to the mountains and then hearing the the bluegrass and country music up in up in the mountains here um i i went up to him i go do you guys realize how good you guys are <laughs> oh my god you know their harmonies it's just like they're they're just playing on, yeah. the, on the porch you know and it's just like wow really really cool good fun stuff Absolutely. to listen to so if people Most wanted definitely. people wanted to find your um your website and you know listen to your podcast where would they go so uh, the ca- the podcast is Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. It is uh, hosted um, on Waypoint TV, but you can find it on all of your major podcast apps. Um, and then the website is castingacross.com. One word, castingacross.com. And uh, there's a Monday and Wednesday article, and then every Friday is the, is the podcast. And I'm on all the social media, but it's, all that's there is to get you to get to the website. <laughs> I don't, I'm not super active on social media because it's depressing. So I don't do it. Right on. Matt, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for uh, being on the show, man. Absolutely, Guy. Thank you very much. And uh, I appreciate uh, all that you're doing. I, I hope to uh, go fishing with you sometime, man, for some brook trout. Absolutely. Brook trout, ducks, everything we got out here. Smallmouth, too. <laughs> then smallmouth. That's right. <laughs> right on. Well, thanks, Matt. Take care, bud. All right, thank you. See you later. Bye. Bye.